Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. While praised for their resilience, frontline workers are faced with amassing circumstances placing them at high risk of mental health issues. A national survey of COVID-19 frontline healthcare workers found more than half reported mental health symptoms during last year's pandemic second wave, yet less than one in 10 accessed formal support programs. Joining us this week to shine a light on the importance of first responder mental health is Graham Ashton, former Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police and Deputy Commissioner of Australian Federal Police. Graham has led several significant international investigations and counter-terrorism operations, including the Australian investigation into the 2002 Bali bombings for the Joint Australian-Indonesian Task Force. He was also at the helm of setting up the Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation in Semarang, Java, a $50 million facility and first of its type. An Australian first, Graham also led the establishment of the Victoria Police Family Violence Training Centre. Graham has an international reputation as an advisor on matters of sport integrity, addressing national and international audiences about sporting, sports integrity and corruption. As Commissioner, he established the world's first Sports Integrity Police Intelligence Unit in Victoria, Australia. Keynote speaker at the 2022 Frontline Mental Health Conference, and now here to join us today, Graham will discuss the importance of integrating mental health plans into the workforce, relaying his knowledge of first responder needs, as well as his lived experience of mental health challenges. Graham, thanks so much for spending some time with us and sharing your story with our listeners and what you're up to. Yeah, good to be here, Sam. Graham, talk to us about your, to set the scene a little bit for our listeners, tell us where did it start for you professionally? I know you've had a lot of experience in the police force and as a matter of that experience, a lot of other things have come up for you, but 40 years in the police service, tell us what inspired you to get involved with the police to start with? Yeah, well, it was interesting, interesting for me, I guess. I grew up a son of a butcher and from a long line of butchers and oh, wow. uh, in Adelaide. And when I left, well, I suppose when I left school in Adelaide, it was a tough time in South Australia. I think the state bank had gone. Bust, and yeah. uh, there weren't many jobs around, and you know I had to look really far afield to think about what am I going to do. I had some friends who had relatives in police, and I really thought that was an interesting job, and so I started applying for police forces around place, and I applied for 
Yeah, one of those police forces was the Australian Federal Police who got back to me first of all and offered me a recruitment process, which I went through and got, got in. And yeah, I guess a sign of the times when I got in, I didn't star at the recruitment test, but they said, oh, well, you, you did okay, but you're really tall, so we'll take you in, you know. <laughs> that was sort of how it was about 40 years ago wow. uh, compared to today when you think about it, it's crazy. But um, yeah, I got in and went off uh, with the Federal Police and had a a really good career there for 24 years and then went to the law enforcement space in Victoria. Yeah, the Victoria Police for a number of years as well. Even went back to the AFP for six months as a deputy commissioner for a little while and then back to yeah. Victoria Police as the chief commissioner. So I was the chief commissioner at Victoria Police 2015 to 20 and then, uh, yeah, so that was some um, good experience as well. What was it like, the Federal Police at that stage, This we're, we're talking during the, what, 80s, 90s, yeah. um, that you were in the Federal Police. What, well, what were you involved with in the Feds and what was your experience with that? Yeah, well, the Federal Police was a great career for a young person who was mobile and was happy to move around. I mean, it was, travel. Uh, yeah, travel was, uh, was there and, yeah, you got to work on some really good um, investigations that really challenged you. There were a lot of a lot of other responsibilities that the Federal Police had that a lot of people didn't know about as well, you know, like protecting a lot of important assets and uh, individuals, VIP protection work and, yeah, a lot of, lot of currency crime, counterfeiting, a lot of other sort of work that the AFP, I think, probably still does that a lot of people don't think about when they think about the AFP. But, yeah, there's a whole diversity of, of different types of investigations you can work and get involved in and travel has, uh, you know, got me all around the world many times. It was a great career if you were mobile and able to get around and have a crack. Tell us, uh, I mean, because we want to touch on your other experience as well in the Vic Police, obviously, as well shortly, but from a federal police point of view, how have you seen them transition with regards to the mental health aspects of things over the years? Because it's been quite a, a while since your, your initiation into the force happened back then, whether or not you know now what they're up to. But, I mean, have you seen a bit of a changing of the guard and seeing – bit of a reduction in stigma and a lot of the, the different things in the, as it relates to mental health in the force? Yeah, look, I think the dial has shifted a bit. It's still got a long way to go in every police force, frankly. The, yeah. stigma, the stigma issue is still alive and well. But certainly when I joined in 1980, it just wasn't talked about at no. all. Like no. no one ever talked about it at all. And throughout my career, I lost friends in the force to suicide. Lost a lot to PTSD that just had to leave and just completely lose contact with them. But I had, I've had some close friends uh, suicide in policing and, and like anyone who's close to the people who do that, you, you ask yourself all those questions about, oh, I just had lunch with the guy last week and what did I miss? You know, was I yeah. not listening? Did I not pick up any cues? Could I have done more? And I think for anyone who has a first responder history like that, they'll all know people that have done that and that have all asked themselves those questions. So it was certainly true for me and, yeah, particularly some really close friends that I lost made, made me just think, gee, uh, if I get a chance one day to be in charge of a police force or in a senior position, uh, this is something I'm going to try and make a difference in. Uh, you know, it's just should be talked about. It should be brought out into the open. We should have a stigma particularly addressed. we just got to get better at this and that was, so I was certainly determined to do that. And so how did you transition from the from the federal police to Vic police and in what role, like how did you start to climb the ladder of the leadership? Well, I sort of came in laterally into the Victoria Police. I was an assistant commissioner when I left the AFP. Okay. And I started out with Vic Pole as the head of forensics 
and which was interesting. It was like the fifth largest forensic lab in the world, and I wasn't a forensic scientist. But, I mean, I'd been an end user of forensics and they'd run a lot of crimes and involved forensics heavily, but, I, you know, I wasn't a practitioner of forensics, and so that was interesting. And I had a, a strategic role then with VicPol for a while, and then I managed to bring my operational skills more on board when I was appointed Assistant Commissioner for Crime which was in charge of all the uh, specialist squads, you know, armed robbery squad and um, armed defender squad and um, homicide squad, all those specialist investigative units um, that Victoria Police has. I was in charge of all those. So that's when I sort of got back more into the operational aspects of uh, policing with Vic Pole. Yeah, from there, when Ken Ken Lay was appointed Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police, um, I was lucky enough to be appointed one of his deputies. I did a few years there and when he left, I... Got the job after him. As your rank or your, your level in the police force went up, did you find that there was more of a chance to, for you to influence? Did you find you were finding more and more of that was confirming the, the things that you were thinking during your service about the things that need to be changed and what needs to be done about it? Yeah, very much so. And I started to understand what the barriers were, why things weren't you know, dealt with and the challenges that were there that just weren't being met. Um, I started to understand what that looked like and the importance of influence. If you're in a, a senior position in any organisation, um, you need to exercise influence of those around you. Mm-hmm. Very, very true in this area around mental health and particularly um, resilience around mental health is really important in that you're able to influence the people around you to try and make a difference as well. And so during your time, I mean, 40 years, I mean, commend you on your service and I know you're still doing amazing things now beyond that, but... The, the time that you've spent during your service, you've seen a lot of changes. You've seen a lot of things have improved. There's still a lot of areas that need to still need to be improved. But as you look at it, what are the, some of the things that you think has been done very well at the time that you've been there? Some things from when you first started to when you sort of, or even now, what do you think has been done quite well? I think if I had to say what, what's been done quite well to what it was, what was happening was probably the response models. So if there's a critical incident that is attended by a first responder, the good organisations have got, have got the responses in place to try and support that particular first responder at, at the workplace at the time. So the response models around critical incident debrief, psych engagement, you know, clinical support, that sort of thing is well well informed, it's well trauma informed, there's good people doing it. To me, that stands up. I think in Australia it stands up to anything else in the world. Is that right? It's being really best practice, I, I think. And there's other gaps, some big gaps, but uh, that's an area that I think is being done well. Do you have that flexibility of response too? Because it's a big thing in leadership, isn't it, on how response, how people respond in certain situations, but being able to have that not as rigid in or structured in how you have to do things, but being able to have that capacity for leaders to be flexible in those situations. Yeah. Well, flexibility is really important in first responder leadership, that's for sure, which is count, runs a bit sometimes counterintuitive because, you know, you're very much trained in command and control and in a command and control setting, you give someone a set of instructions, come back when you've done that. And that's and someone is skilled to carry out that instruction, they do that and then they come back. And it's a very much a command and control oriented model. So if you then have to act outside of that, think about what else needs to be in place here. This is a different conversation than I'm used to. In fact, I may not have all the answers. I might need to know where to go to to get those answers. And I need to look what now what this space looks like in 
this person I'm talking to might need a response that's different from the last five people I talked to. Yeah. That's just that flexibility doesn't come perhaps naturally to many first responder leaders. I'm pleased to say that that's less the case than it used to be, for sure, but that's not a natural skill set. So that's an area that, you know, that I guess has improved over time, but an area that's really important these days, for sure. Graham, was there anything that surprised you as you got in those deputy commissioner and commission roles, commissioner roles, was there anything that surprised you as with regards to why things weren't being done? Like when you got to that level, do you think, oh, it's because of a deeper understanding that I completely didn't get or most people don't understand. It's a lot more complex than just doing this. Is it a lack of resources? Was there anything in particular as you got higher in that control, command and control, that you realized, oh, you know what? It's not that they don't care or it's, it's the fact that we don't have the money, we don't have the expertise, we don't have the, the drive of anybody who's, who's really leading this change. Have you found any of those factors? Oh, yes, that's absolutely true, Sam. All those things you've just said are true. I mean, not that people don't care about A, B and C, you know, investment yeah. and, and all the rest of it. I think that's very true. I think, you know, that, that sort of you look at it and you think, uh, well, why isn't this investment prioritised, you know? And, and when you get there, you think, well, why are we so underspent in this area <laughs> compared to something else we do? And that sort of thing, like it's really a, uh, it's really a, an interesting point, I think, about sort of prioritising. But what you do know when you notice when you get into leadership roles in first responder organisations, you get involved in what I I call management by spotlight. So there's a there's a problem over here, and like the under nineteen under nine soccer team, we all run over there and fix that, and everything yeah. else is in the dark. The spotlight's on that. And then suddenly something else is broken, so we all go over here, <laughs> and we we fix that, and we pour all our energies and money into that. And then we were up here doing that. And so we just dart around. And so all those areas in the dark, if they're not broken, they don't keep up yeah. with what modern standards and modern competencies look like until they break. And, you know, it's really important as a, an executive working in that field to understand you need a model of management that is looking to raise the water level everywhere, you know. Yeah. So you're regularly going back and regularly reviewing all areas of your capability to make sure that you're not falling behind and that's... Um, because of the, the type of work you do, it's, it's an ever-present risk in first responder organisations. It's a great analogy on, yeah, I mean, that, man, that's really, really good. Was that in play when you got there? Like the, the fact that you need the elevated management point of view where you had people that are looking after all these different aspects rather than what you were saying with the spotlight mentality? We were certainly doing the under nine soccer team thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so we're doing that at the AFP as well for that matter, but... And there's an element that causes that with sometimes with the media and, you know, they'll focus on a – there'll be a big media story on something. And Subject, yeah. Suddenly, your whole week, you thought you had perhaps doing some of that more routine analysis of things that might be actually good to do. You spend your whole week running around putting out a fire over here, you know, and that sort of feeds into that mentality a bit of um, just tearing around, trying to fix issues that break and feel like you never get ahead of them, you never prevent anything. So more like a highly reactive environment rather than yeah. trying to get – I mean, it's, it's, it, were there any, uh, any other challenges? I'm sure there were, but at, in your role as commissioner for in police, what were some of the key challenges that you faced? Because I understand mental health and well-being, the initiative itself was one of the priorities that you wanted to focus on. Yeah. What were some of the challenges as, a, as commissioner and, and trying to roll out such initiatives in the force? Yeah, we had some uh, big-ticket initiatives we did to try and progress when I was in the role, one of which we'd already started under the previous Chief Commission was around gender equality and gender harm in the workplace. 
and uh, we'd started a piece of work there and I really had to commit the organisation to the long journey of that so I was certainly focused on doing that and modernising the force was another area we really needed to focus on. Our capabilities had dropped away in a number of key areas and we could see these sort of service delivery challenges coming in the future and we really weren't, weren't ready for them in a lot of ways. We needed to really sort of really address some key capabilities and modernise our approach in many ways and we were able to do that. We had some, some excellent investment from government that, that assisted us to do that. And then the safety and the health and safety of our people, bringing that more forward in our conversations at policing. You know, a lot of organisations, you go work and look at the mining sector, for example, safety, 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 the transport sector, safety, safety, they're the first one, two, three conversations before you talk about anything else, but it's not a police. It's, mm. it's, it'll be number five or six. Yeah. So bringing that up to be the first conversation the organisation has and putting our people up front to say, well, your safety is our paramount priority here. You know, you can't support the community if you're not safe. So you need to be safe. And part of that is your mental health safety as well, you know, making sure that you're healthy from a mental health perspective and that you, you're able to prevent injury and prevent the risk of injury is just a key part of that safety conversation. So we started to bring safety more to the fore of, of the force in terms of its, of its priority. And when you're looking at that, you're, you're also creating those, you really did an inquiry or a review into how you were doing currently, but looking at the recruitment aspect as well as the in-service opportunity or the trainings, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. It was holistic, the review we did, and the other big benefit, I think, as well, was we were able to engage with the police association on this because often police relationships with their unions can be difficult at times because you're often trying to deal with issues that you might be coming at from different perspectives. But in relation to the unions and policing, one priority we should be sharing is the safety of the staff. It should be as important to the police management leadership as it is to the police associations of the country. So... It was a really good engagement tool with them to say, oh, let's work together to improve safety of the staff. And in the mental health, this was really good because the TPA, to their great credit, Credit in Victoria, undertook the Blue Hub reforms, which was provide a, a harbour safe space for people to come to and get the sort of support and treatment they need uh, with, with, with a sort of almost at arm's length and away from, from the, what the police were doing. And that's an initiative that's paying dividends uh, today and uh, you know, that really arose from that engagement and trying to harness their support and enthusiasm for this topic as well. So it's an area that you know, we've been able to derive a number of benefits from in, in, internally and in our engagement with the community on this. When, when your team undertook the review, did you find anything that was really surprising to you? Like, oh, why aren't we doing this? Or, or is that really how it's being done? Was there anything that really stood out to you as like, we have really good opportunity. Obviously, on one on one hand, it's like can't believe we're doing it this way still. But here's the opportunity if we can really do some some really positive change and inflict some positive uh, changes for our people. If we do, if we can get these few initiatives right, was there anything that stood out? Yeah, certainly. As I said before, about you know our response models were pretty good, and review yeah. found that you know which was which was good to know. But there was this whole other side that we really hadn't thought of about, about building resilience and prevention, you know, and police are, are one agency that are really heavily focused on response. You know, prevention is not a key part often of what police do, and it should be, but it's, it's inevitably not. And you don't tend to often have a prevention mindset, and so knowing, well, there's all these things we haven't got in place in relation to prevention, edu- proper education of our recruits, 
then in service education and leadership side of things, there was you know the the illiteracy we had within the leadership group of of how to deal with these issues, how to have the right conversations with your staff. You know the old mantra: "Are you okay?" Mm-hmm. It's easy to say; it's not as easy to do in an operational setting. And knowing how you start those conversations, and knowing and knowing what to be alert for in individuals that you're around to try and pick up cues that they might be struggling. They're really important skills to develop in leadership and in first response leadership. I think they should be core skills, not add-ons. That really should be at the core of what one of your leadership responsibilities is. And we were we were really lacking in that. And so we were able to put in place leadership programs that sought to improve literacy and leadership responsibilities, which was a really good outcome of the review. But yeah, that whole prevention side of it was a big eye-opener, I think, and uh, an area that that obviously still should be worked on today. What about the stigma within the force? I mean, do you feel back in 2015 or during your service, 2015 to 2020, as, as a Vic Pol Police Commissioner, did you feel that stigma during your term was getting better as you were addressing it? Do you, obviously, you said it still exists today to a certain extent. How, did, how have you felt the police is doing on the stigma side of things? Yeah, I think it's still lots of work to be done, but you will find more areas that is that looks closer to best practice than you did before. Like I said, when I first joined, no one ever talked about it at all. I mean, it was never discussed. And then it went through a phase where, uh, for a period of years, where people start to see it, but no one would know, well, you know, that's not good. We Let's not even talk about that. We'll sweep it under the carpet and uh, hope it, just pretend not to look at it. And then... It started to reach a point where it was so prevalent, the harm was so visible and so regularised that people had to start to say, oh, actually, we need to actually start to tackle this and deal with it. And part of that was dealing with the stigma associated with it because as soon as people started to lift up the, the blanket and look underneath and see what was there, what they saw was that stigma was a major factor in first responders seeking help. And when you go through your training as a first responder, you're trained from day one to be the person that copes, that has the answers, that has the solutions. You know, you're the pathway to, you're the pathway to for a matter to move forward. It's often dealing with people at the most vulnerable time in their lives that they'll remember for the rest of their lives that engagement. And you need to be the person that solves the starts to anyway solve the problems. And when you're given that training and it's drummed into you, and you're given all those skills that sit around that, when you're not coping, that doesn't sit well with that model to say, well, actually, I'm not. I don't think I can provide the solutions there. I'm actually not sleeping. I've got all these other factors starting to impact on my life that are just making me unhealthy. And I, I don't feel like I can say anything because I'll be seen as weak and I'll be seen as someone that's not coping or maybe they'll take my gun off me and put me in a desk job when I like being on the road. And, yeah. you know, there's so many consequences to that and it's just it's hard to deal with and it just requires really strong leadership to try and make the organisation more, a more permissible environment to seek help in. And that's, that's an ongoing challenge that police forces are dealing with today. During your time as Commissioner, Graham, you also identified that your mental health and wellbeing needed to be a priority for yourself as well. Uh, tell us about that experience and then as a result of you doing that, the impact that had on the rest of your team. Yeah, sure. I'd Late 2017, I think that was, and I'd been going around the organisation as a result of our mental health review saying, people, speak up, speak up. If you're struggling, speak up, you know. And then I just sort of found myself in a situation where I was struggling and I was, my main issue was, you know, mostly around just fatigue and not being able to manage fatigue and 
I was just mentally and physically exhausted, you know, and then I sort of got to the stage where I was getting out of bed this in the morning was just, you know, I used to just bounce out of bed and I was, but no, I was just struggling to get up in the morning and be a couple of hours till I was really thinking properly and, and, I, and I decided I'd just go have a break here. So it was close to Christmas and I could have just taken leave and said nothing and, and tried to fix things and change things around in my life, which I did, but I, I could have done that quietly, but having gone around drumming into people to speak up. I didn't feel authentic for me to... It just didn't sit right with me just to hide that. So I thought, well, here's my chance to speak up, you know. I could maybe set the example and make something positive out of uh, a bad situation. So I did that. I was um, I communicated with the organisation about the time I was taking, why I was taking it, what I was going to do about it, and what the arrangements were while I'd be away, obviously, which are organised with government as well around, you know, those sort of interfaces that need to be there as well. So... Yeah, I put things in place and then um, I took that time out and I had a very supportive team around me at work. They jumped in, they, you know, they did all the, the duties that I was supposed to do, did it really well. Yeah, and they were great support, so I was very fortunate there. And when I came back, when I eventually turned my email on, I was inundated with messages from people, staff at various ranks and support roles who actually said, well, we're glad you did that because that was a cue for me to do something. Uh, if you can do it, I can do it. So, and that was yeah, many, many, many emails from staff. So that made me really feel buoyed that I'd made the right call in in speaking up and taking the time I needed. A great example of leaders going first and communicating that is you know, eating your own cooking. It's <laughs> it's great to to see that you took those steps and and obviously rubbed off on the rest of the force to actually be able to speak up. Yeah, and it helped me with my literacy as well. My own lived experience helped there. So probably maybe even more passionate in this area in the future, you know, these days when I'm involved with other organisations. So, yeah, it, it certainly did that for me. And it made me particularly realise that it's not a one-size-fits-all. Like what worked in the end for me is different from other people. Everyone's different. I needed things other than the police to think about sometimes because I was just thinking of my work. The time I got up to went to bed, my friends, I'd stopped seeing friends that I had you know, for years, suddenly realised I haven't seen them for a year. Hobbies that I had, I wasn't doing. I did, for me, I needed things to shift my mind from work onto something else and then come back to work, you know, like that trigger. I wasn't in control of that trigger. I didn't have the mechanisms. I didn't have the things to focus on that had dropped away. I'd let them go. So for me, it was about, A, getting some rest, but B, let's restructure my lifestyle and my approach with my family, my friends, my hobbies and things like that that, gave me those those things that I need. But that was just my that was just me. Everyone's different. Everyone has different things they need to work on. Graham, tell us about the things that you've up since your retirement of the service. Tell us about what you've been up to now and the exciting projects that you're involved with. Yeah, well it's been an interesting time. I was, I suppose technically I retired, but I sort of I don't know what that means anymore. I sort of just to get to be involved in more balance in my life probably and I, I get to do hobbies that I'm interested in. And plus, I get to be involved in different projects and organisations. So I did want to, I did want to maintain an involvement in mental health. So it was really great. I got to be, become involved with an organisation called Fortum Australia. And they're all about mental health well-being for first responders and families across the country. So really, you know, every, every, everyone from, uh, you know, your, your volunteer firefighters through to your uh, frontline police and ambulance and fire, you know, Everyone, surf life so, savers. Surf life savers, yep. everyone that's, that we can be involved with and they're keen to be involved with. So, And it's very much a model about family and, and well-being of the family group. Yeah, so talk to us about that family-centred care because I know that there's, in looking at the website, there's a lot of 
a lot of focus on family well-being and also trying to create more awareness out there for the different organisations and some courses. Tell us more about uh, what they're up to and what opportunities lie with Fortum. Yeah, well, it's a fairly new organisation and I'm, I'm chair of the board currently and they initially became heavily involved in bushfire response because uh, Black Summers heard about the time that Fortum was just kicking off. And it was an organisation that was trying to bring some of the experience of the, in, in the military space with the soldier on experience over into the, the first responder space because there is such a gap in first responders, that sort of support. So getting involved there, they, they very much treat the family as being the, the sort of the whole unit of family. So you've got your frontline worker, but then you've got the whole family at home. And often organisations that are frontline organisations will do things around the actual worker, but first responder but they're not actually dealing with the family as well we know that's such an important part of that whole well-being is that family so it is a bit of a niche area that Fordham got into following the fires that they hold we hold regular well-being events it might be everything from cooking classes and you know bike riding or bushwalking and you know to get families along to meet with other families talk share experiences network and then at the same time there's clinical support available if people need it and that can lead to some ongoing clinical support, which uh, Fordham is able to provide as well. So uh, it's very much trying to work in, in assisting first responder organisations not to try to take their space because the last thing, if you're leading first responder organisations, the last thing you should do is try and outsource your responsibilities to care for your people. But they are an organisation you can use to assist you to do that. And so... They can play an important role, I think, in that regard, and as do a lot of organisations like Fordham that are covered various different aspects. But certainly having that opportunity, the return rate for our programs we run, you know, something like over 90% of people come back from, you know, when they go to one session, they'll come back, which is a really good indicator that they're getting something out of it. And even as recently today, you know, I was getting feedback from people about, you know, some of those events that they've been to and how good they were. So, you know, it's really nice to hear that feedback from the, that the staff at Fordham are having a positive impact there. So there's lots of resources on there. There's peer support, there's uh, clinical support, there's courses. There's also different aspects of it, I understand, like the mental fitness side of things and the peak state as yeah. well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's part of one of the skill sets there is about uh, understanding a holistic well-being and certainly we engage with a number of organisations in terms of getting expertise that we can provide to first responders and families about understanding your health, your physical health and well-being, your diet, your nutri- you know, that whole nutrition mm-hmm. side of it. It's a big part of your overall wellness regime. You know, some of the issues that you might ordinarily think around your meditation, you know, your sleep and some of those more mature areas of response are really important, but often there's areas that can sit around areas like nutrition and Sleep. Yeah, and, and your, your physical aspects of your physical health that can play a really strong role in making you resilient, building on your resilience and helping you as well, I think, to understand some of the triggers that you might meet as well. I think one of the programs more recently that Autumn's gotten involved in as well, which is getting good take-up, is the transition program. So, you know, I know I had so many first responders that felt stuck in, you know, they, they've reached that point where, okay, I think I need to make a change. But they were so set that they thought, well, I can't actually leave almost, you know, I, I, what else am I going to do, you know, if I do leave? And it's a feeling of you can be really feel trapped sometimes. And so we've got a whole bunch of organisations, Bunnings and others, really big organisations that have been involved in providing alternate employment pathways for first responders who 
Do you think they might want to make that transition out? Wow. So we've been able to work with a number of the first responder agencies on that and providing pathways for training, particularly on IT, IT training and cyber security and areas like that. We've had a big take-up there um, as well. So, yeah, it's a fairly new offering, but already I think we've, we've already helped over 100 first responders even in a very short time in terms of doing that. And we've got about, you know, it's a growing list, but it's already uh, you know, 25 major organisations that are involved now in offering alternate employment pathways for first responders. So that's been an area that's been exciting recently to try and say, you know, let's let's provide a safe a safe journey for people who have been harmed and a safe pathway out. And it makes sense, doesn't it, to, to go to organisations where that sort of skill set and the people that are coming from the police force who just because of one reason or another they've decided they want to try and do something else but they're not completely redundant they don't they've still got skill sets that can be used and it makes sense because they spend a lot of money on recruiting these yep. other people so it makes sense to join them together oh, and provide that opportunity absolutely there's some great skill sets i mean first responders have great skill sets that are very very transportable so if you can plug them in and have the right networks to get them you know they're great team workers in team they understand the team working models really well they can usually work under pressure really well. What often organisations might think of under pressure to these people is not pressure at all. You know, like it's, it's very routine to them quite often. So they work well under that pressured environment. They work well, as I say, in a team and they can think very logically and about dealing with issues as well. So, and, and usually they have enough life experience dealing with people that if they're facing customers in organisations or involved in, in that sort of customer-facing side of things, they're usually pretty skilled as well at dealing with that as well. They have a lot of transferable skills. And Graham, you mentioned the transition after their career in, in a first responder environment. The importance of looking after their mental health and wellbeing beyond the uniform. I mean, tell us about your thoughts on that and, and what you know is out there that is supporting them, whether it's from Fortum or something else. Well, the veteran space is really important and uh, the term veteran is used a lot, obviously, in the military context. You talk about veterans, people think military, but I've been certainly trying to use the term very much in the law enforcement community as well. They've served the community, often people for many decades. When they leave, they are veterans of that service, And but unfortunately, culturally, with first responder agencies, once you leave, you sort of leave, you disconnect, and suddenly you're an ex. And there's an old saying I own in policing, there's never nothing more ex than an ex, you know, and you're out, you're out. And I've certainly been keen on trying to change that over the years. And I know when I was at Victoria Police, we just had a lot of harm going on that we'd, we'd caused to people that were in the veteran community now, the law enforcement veteran community. And uh, we need to provide ongoing support to them. So I, I raised uh, money to... I went on a walk across Victoria, a 500k walk, oh, wow. and raised money to start an organisation called uh, Police Veterans Victoria. And they still exist. They're working to provide support for veterans' welfare and well-being. And, yeah, so that's an organisation been around for a while working in the police veteran space, but it's the only one of its kind in the country. There's nothing else. I was about to say, is it no state-specific? Yeah. Yeah, it's very much state-specific. There's no department, department of Veteran Affairs for first responders. Wow. As there are in the military, for example. And so your veteran community is really... It's a huge gap that needs to be addressed, I think, because I think we have a responsibility as a community for those people if they've harmed, you know, by doing their work for the community and they just go off and become unsupported, living in a country town, trying to deal with their demons for the rest of their life, unsupported. It's not good enough in mind. No, I agree. I agree with that. You're right. It's, it's an area that's under-resourced and needs to be 
not only national a national focus but also uh, across the different services doesn't it really yeah yeah very true i mean it's, I've, i you see it as an area that's starting to change but slowly um and it's an area that does you know, the whole veteran space needs yeah it needs it needs growth and support and involvement Graham, tell us about what's ahead for you. What's coming up in the future for you professionally? What's any other exciting things, any other projects, any other evolutions of what you're already doing? Yeah, look, more generally I'm involved in a whole raft of different things and still involved in the gender quality space in there, but trying to involve with organisations in, in that space as well. I've been involved in sports integrity work for a fair while now, a number of years, so I'm maintaining that involvement. And in the mental health wellbeing space, you know, my involvement with Fortum, you know, that's been really that key focus for me in this space and I, and I hope it will be for a time into the future as well. It's, yeah, I, there are a lot of organisations getting into this sort of space now because I said the gap's so big. Yeah. A lot of pa- passionate people stepping in with different elements and my way of thinking, you just got to let all them in at the moment and we'll deconflict it later, you know. It's, it's a case of passionate people want to get involved in this space, let them in and let's see what can be done. And let's all try and make a difference to me. So, you know, I'll just keep hopefully involved in this, you know, involved in this work into the future along with other, other disparate areas that I'm involved with as well. When you look at all the things you've achieved so far in your career and your life, what, what have been some of the things you've been most proud of as it relates to, from a professional point of view as far as some big achievements that stand out for you? Well, this is an important one. Certainly the work we've been able to do on mental health when I was the Chief Commissioner of Edoy Police, it was very important to me and I'm proud of the progress we did make. There's a lot of progress still to be made, of course, and current leadership are very committed to doing that. But, but I was proud of the difference that I was able to make in that, in that regard and, you know, that even at a very granular level, all the people that I was able to engage with that I've helped along the way too is uh, very rewarding for me. I think as well, you know, I think that the leadership in policing across the country went through a period where it really become a much more thoughtful leadership, you know, and people like Andrew Colvin, the former chief, the former commissioner of the AFP, is a good example of that, a really thoughtful leader, and there were a lot of them around the country, you know, Chris Dawson in Perth, and a lot of really good thoughtful leaders around, and I, I th- it's been nice, I think, to be involved with those people and be around people that are thoughtful leaders in policing, because for, for many years as I come up, I didn't see a lot of that, you see it here and there. Yeah, but not a lot of that, and so that generational shift of that quality of thought that police would bring to their role at the executive level has been something they've been able to contribute to, I think, and try and promote and encourage in people. That's been, I think, something that I've got a lot of, I guess, a lot of satisfaction out of well, because now now you see a lot of the great leaders around in the law enforcement space, you know, and I think if I could even played a very small role in being a part of that, then that's that's been great, and I, you know, yeah, even today I'm still doing some work with occasionally with the Australian Institute of Police Management and those conversations as well. It's good to be involved with as well. Yep, and the work you've done around gender equality, I mean, there's so many things that you've been a part of, even, you know, serving as uh, in the police with the, the task force, with the, the Bali bombings over in Indonesia. There's some some really big achievements there as well as all the work with the sports integrity stuff as well. Yeah, there's some interesting things there. I mean, yeah, Bali was uh, you know, a very challenging time. Australia, Bali bombings happened. It was really our September 11, you know, a massive tragedy and a lot of lives lost. From an investigative point of view, it was a real challenge to try and support the Indonesian police and I, I led the international response to that and on the ground over there in Bali and we had a great team around us of uh, 
really experienced, uh, really committed people that ended up providing a great deal of good support. And, you know, in the end, we, we did catch the offenders there and, you know, they went through the Indonesian justice system. And for the families that lost people in, or, and, you know, the families and friends that lost people in that terrible tragedy, hopefully we were able to provide an element of, of justice, sense of justice for them that the people that did it were, were caught and committing future atrocities in the future. So, yeah, that was a challenging operation to be involved in. There's no doubt about that. At that time, I was 40 when that happened. And, wow. you know, to be in that situation was quite a challenge. 500 people over there working in support of the Indonesia from all different countries. It was a, yeah, it was a challenging time, a learning time as well. Yeah. Uh, and even establishing the Jakarta Centre of Law Enforcement as well, like that... Yeah, that kind of grew out of that, really, that cooperation that we established yeah. with Indonesian police and the Bali bombings was was something we hadn't achieved to, to that level before, really working in an integrated way to deal with offending and we thought a good way to continue that would be to build a centre of learning in Java that we could contribute to and other countries could contribute to to continue to build the expertise in the Indonesian, Indonesian National Police and neighbouring police forces in dealing with, particularly with counter-terrorism, but yeah. heavy influence forensics forensics and that sort of thing but certainly more broad than that too so yeah that was a good centre to establish and the Indonesians were really really great in terms of accepting the benefits that, that can bring and in fact they they ha- um, agreed to um, have the centre housed in their police academy in Semarang in central Java which uh, was good of them to do that and still there to this day and I still get really good reports about that how about all that all that's going so that's nice to Nice to think all these years later that's uh, still yeah. delivering results for them. You've, you've done so much in your time and, uh, and I'm sure you still have a lot of influence and, uh, and a lot of great initiatives that are still going to come from the work that you're still doing. Any closing comments before we tie a bow on the podcast? Oh, no, I think good on you, Sam, for having these open conversations and getting these out in this podcast form. I think it's, uh, it's a good, good leadership on your part and good commitment on your part. I think... Uh, you know, this is a nice medium to get to a big audience and, and for you, a growing audience. So, you know, I think it's uh, to, you're to be commended for that and encourage other people if they think they've got contributions they can make to reach out to you to say, look, I'd be part of this as well. I think there's a message that I can give and be part of the conversation in the future. So I just wish you all the best with that. Thanks, Graham. And if people want to get in touch with you, the best way is through the Fortum Australia website. Yep. Yeah, jump on, have a chat to the good people at Fortum. They can get me any time. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Well, thanks very much for your time, Graham. We appreciate it and good luck in the future. All the best, Sam. Thanks for the chat. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.